The Plant Genomics Program, the Mandavi Center, and the Campus Community Book Project are delighted and honored to co-sponsor this evening's lecture by Michael Pollan, Knight Professor of Journalism at UC Berkeley. We have just learned 10 minutes ago that Professor Pollan's book, The Omnivore's Dilemma, was just named one of the top 10 books of the year by the New York Times Book Review. I would like to thank Raheem Reed, Gary Sue Goodman, and Victoria Whitworth, Program Assistant of the Plant Genomics Program, for their tremendous effort in making this year's Community Book Project a success. I would also like to thank Dave Webb of the Madavi Center for coordinating this evening's event, and the College of Agriculture and Environmental Sciences for support of the Plant Genomics Program Distinguished Speaker Series. Established in 2004, the Plant Genomics Program aims to foster interdisciplinary research in plant genomics and to communicate the potential societal impacts of this research to the public. The Plant Genomics Program Distinguished Speaker Series honors scholars who have made significant contributions to plant biology or communicated the important role of plant biology in food and farming. Pollan's talent for writing creatively about science was key to his selection as the Plant Genomics Program inaugural distinguished speaker. We saw Professor Pollan's previous book, The Botany of Desire, A Plant's Eye View of the World, as a model of beautiful writing with an interesting perspective on plant and human coevolution. He uses an engaging, thoughtful, and personal approach to clearly explain plant genetics to the general public. We also thought that Professor Pollan would be interested in visiting UC Davis, which has strong humanities, journalism, and science programs, as well as a unique role in promoting ecological farming practices and the latest advances in plant genetics. The humanities and sciences sometimes seem to inhabit thoroughly separate realms, but science and technology's increasingly pervasive roles, from stem cells to global warming to plant genetic engineering, make scientific literacy vital to civic life. How then do we bridge the gap between the humanities and science and educate the general public about the critical issues in science? In part, the answer lies in writing about science in ways that humanize the subject while remaining true to the science. Not only does Professor Pollan do this, but he describes subjects that are dear to us in the Davis community, plants, good food, and ecologically responsible farming. Tonight, the entire UC Davis community is delighted to welcome Michael Pollan, featured author of the Campus Community Book Project, Mandavi Special Event Lecturer, and the 2006 Plant Genomics Program Distinguished Speaker. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and thank you, Pam and Rahim, for those uh, very kind words. I'd also like to thank Gary Sue Goodman, who got, kind of got this ball rolling along with Pam, Dave Webb, Virginia Hinshaw, and Neil Van Alphen. Um, you know, you got, you've, you've all paid the highest compliment you can to a writer, which is to say, reading his work and taking it seriously and uh, inviting him to come talk about it. Um, so it is uh, as wonderful as that other distinction I just learned about is. This is, uh, this is one of the great honors that I've been able to um, 
be part of this project and also participate in your community. Be welcomed into your community to, uh, to have a dialogue about these issues. I feel that this is, uh, uh, and that it happened here is, is very important to me for a couple reasons. One is that this university, this community was really part of my education. You know, I'm not a scientist. I'm not an expert. I'm a writer. And uh, when I write about a subject I haven't written about before, I have to go out and educate myself. And there are many people on this campus who were key sources for me as I, as I developed the ideas of this book. But the other reason it's really exciting for me to be here in your community is that you have such a local, such a vital local food community, and you have for a long time, longer than a lot of other places around this country. And this is a place where, in many ways, the future of food is being decided. So an opportunity to speak to you uh, means a lot. I salute the, the new Agricultural Sustainability Institute. I think it holds great promise. And, um, uh, and in fact, that the word in the middle of that title kind of has inspired the talk I want to give. Um, because I want to talk about the importance for our health, uh, for our security, for our environment of um, developing local food systems and developing a, a truly sustainable agriculture, which we are a long way from. Um, let me start out with that word. Um, sustainability. It's a not very attractive word. It's kind of a pallid social science-y word um, and much abused. Um, it, you know, it really pays. I'm a writer, and, and, and one of the first things I do when I explore a subject is, is think about the words and, and what wisdom might be embedded in them or what wisdom may have been forgotten in the way that they're used. Um, there's a great line somewhere in Confucius that uh, before you can begin to, to make progress and think, you need a process, Confucius, called the rectification of the names. And I think we need a rectification of this word sustainability. So what is it? Um, and what does it mean to say that something's unsustainable? Let's, let's dwell on the negative for a little bit. Um, well, it, it just doesn't mean that it's good or bad or we like it or we don't like it. It means something very specific. Unsustainable means that something cannot go on the way it has been going on indefinitely. Why? Because it is consuming or destroying the resources or conditions it depends on. So collapse or radical change is inevitable. Uh, we, we need to remind ourselves of that, um, that there is much at stake here. Um, that that system is a kind of zero-sum game, uh, dependent on subtracting from the world or from, the, from resources or from people in a way that can never be um, corrected. Um, so what does that mean with, re with respect to our food system? Um, because I would argue that our food system is unsustainable. Um, our industrial food system. And I use that, that term to really mean all the kind of um, the food that shows up in our supermarkets, by and large, with a few exceptions, and the food that uh, ends up in our fast food restaurants. Um, and, um, you know, in the book, I tell that, I tell the story of that uh, food chain by looking at one crop. And one of the great surprises for me in trying to follow back um, our food from a, from a meal um, was that when it came to mainstream industrial conventional food, I kept ending up, whenever I followed that hamburger, that soda, even those french fries, I kept ending up in the same place, which was to say a farm field in the American Middle West 
where they were growing corn and soybeans. Uh, and I was quite, this was a real shock to me. I did not realize the extent to which these two plants, out of all the, the hundreds of thousands of wonderful edible plants there are on this planet, uh, that we have come to depend on for our food. Uh, and indeed, today, 80% of our calories are coming from just four or five plants. I don't know exactly how many come from corn and soy. But, and I focused on corn um, because it was such, a, uh, such an important building block of the fast food nation. And I looked very closely at that whole uh, corn industrial complex. Um, and that this is a, this is a plant that, um, uh, first I need to say I have a great deal of respect for corn as a plant. And... Um, um, <laughs> Indeed, it has completely outwitted us at this point and um, gotten us probably to do more for it than it does for us because um, it's doing a lot of bad things to us. Um, but corn as a food is wonderful. Corn as an industrial raw material or as a food product is another matter. Um, but, you know, it has one plant by virtue of its genius and its ability to manipulate us has conquered our land, uh, our food system, uh, all our animals, that you know, all our food animals, and it's even c conquered our bodies. Um, and uh, you know, we have this. Tw we grow 12, 000, uh, 12 million, sorry, billion bushels today that we transform into all manner of processed food, um, feeding it to our animals, fractionating it, distilling and refining it into things like high fructose corn syrup. Um, and it's this oversupply of corn that really is responsible for the fact that, uh, f that um, sweetness and fat, added fat are so ubiquitous in our diet and in our bodies. Um, in effect, with this plant and this, uh, well, I, what I will argue is a very unsustainable food system, we've taken our food system off of the sun Agriculture, of course, begins as a solar enterprise, and we've kind of hooked it into the fossil fuel economy in a way that is deeply unsustainable. Um, so what does it mean to say that corn system is unsustainable? Well, start with energy, okay? And I'm not even going to list all the ways in which it's unsustainable. Um, we used to, before the rise of industrial agriculture in the last century, we used to get two calories of food energy for every one calorie of fossil fuel energy we invested in agriculture, driving tractors or whatever we were doing. Now, with the, the way we eat today, 10 calories of fossil fuel energy are required for every one calorie of food that we eat. Um, we are using oil to grow corn. Um, we are using corn to make oil substitute. Um, it's a particular uh, scale of absurdity maybe we can get into in the question period, but um, but our food system now accounts for, and the estimates vary from like 15 to 24%, but the best ones I've seen is about 17% of our fossil fuel use is going to feed ourselves. To give you some comparison, 18% goes to personal transportation, to driving around. So food is a very important part of the energy problem, a very important part of the climate change crisis. Indeed, each of us, Americans, eating the way we are, which is to say a very high meat, highly processed diet, are adding, simply by our eating decisions, four tons of carbon to the atmosphere every year. Um, it's not often talked about in that, in, in those, uh, you know, as part of the energy dilemma. It's, I think it was one of the real um, lacks in an otherwise terrific film, Al Gore's film, Inconvenient Truth, that he never really addressed 
the food part of the problem. But it's a large part of the problem, and in a way, it's one of the more uh, tractable parts of the problem. Um, our trade in food is exploding right now. Uh, more and more food is traveling further and further. You've heard the statistics. The average item of food in your supermarket has traveled 1,500 miles. Um, we are, as a, an economist pointed out, we are um, selling sugar cookies to the Danes and buying sugar cookies from the Danes. Um, another absurdity, as he, as he pointed out, you know, it would be a lot more sustainable to simply swap recipes. <laughs> I think it's a very good suggestion. Um, so this can't last. We cannot, we know we are reaching the end of our oil supply and we cannot continue to eat it the way we are. Uh, pollution. Um, there are many kinds of pollution associated with industrial agriculture. There is the, 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 the pollution of pesticides, uh, all those uh, the 80 million acres of cornfield in this country. Most of it is grown with atrazine, a very toxic weed killer um, that is in the water, in the corn belt, that we know at concentrations as low as 1.1 part per billion turns male frogs into hermaphrodites, chemically emasculates them. This is in the water supply all throughout the corn belt at much higher levels than that. Um, fertilizer pollution, nitrogen, we put way too much nitrogen, which by the way is made from fossil fuels, mostly natural gas, uh, and that Fertilizer runs off the cornfields of, of the American Midwest and runs down the Mississippi into the Gulf of Mexico where it has created a dead zone currently the size of New Jersey and growing. Um, this won't last. Our patience for this I don't think will last. Um, health. What about health? This food system of abundant, cheap food. Well, you know, our food system is providing lots of food, but it is not doing what a food system needs to do, which is to say, keep its population healthy. Um, we are not healthy. We are overfed and we are fed in such a way that we're suffering from an epidemic of diabetes that threatens to uh, make the lifespan of the generation being born today shorter than that of their parents for the first time in American history because of diabetes. Um, many other chronic diseases as well. Um, this monoculture diet, when, you, when you're getting so many of your calories from uh, a very small number of plants that you're essentially breaking down and, and creating into what appears, the, you know, it appears to be this incredible diversity in the supermarket, but in fact it's corn calories or soy calories of one kind or another. You know, we are omnivores. We know we need between 50 and 100 different chemicals, minerals, to, to be healthy, and you don't get that from processed corn and soy, with the result that in the inner city, in Oakland, near where I live, there are children who live on fast food diets in West Oakland who come into clinics suffering from things like rickets, diseases we thought we had conquered 100 years ago. Why? Well, they're drinking more soda than milk. Um, they have micronutrient deficiencies because their diet is so um, monocultural. Um, well, money. How about sustainability in terms of money? Cheap food, though, it turns out, is really, really expensive. Um, we, uh, we spend up to $25 billion a year to subsidize this food economy. 40% of the income in the American Farm Belt today comes from government payments, from subsidy checks. So this food is not really as cheap as it looks. We're all paying for it. 
food security, and I'll talk more about this later, but having such a uh, concentrated food system um, raises enormous uh, vulnerabilities uh, to either accidental or deliberate contamination. And we had an illustration of that with the E. coli 157H7 in spinach just a, just a few weeks ago. Um, when you're washing the nation's entire salad in one sink, more or less, in the Salinas Valley at one company, um, when something goes wrong, and something will go wrong, even at the best-run food plant, uh, many, many people are affected. Hundreds and hundreds of people are affected. And lastly, the last sense, and I haven't talked about the animal welfare, and I haven't talked about labor, and there are many other ways in which the system is unsustainable, but it's unsustainable, I would argue, and this speaks to my theme and my project, because it depends on ignorance. And a system that depends on ignorance for its survival, and let me tell you what I mean by that. It means that when people know what they're eating, when they know how that hamburger was produced or how that chicken nugget was produced, they lose their appetite for it. People who read Fast Food Nation lost their appetite for fast food. Um, when you look over the high walls of our industrial feedlots and see how the animals live and see how the animals die, you, you stop eating that food. So you see that that wall is very important to the survival of the system. But walls don't last. We know that. We know that, we know that from the fall of communism. We know that, um, that sooner or later, um, uh, people will see. Someone will show them. And when they do, uh, they will turn away from this food system. So it's unsustainable in, in the sense that it depends on our not knowing. Um, now, more and more people are, do know. More and more people are worrying about the food system. How do we know that? Well, because we, we can look at their consumer behavior. They're flocking to Whole Foods. They're flocking to the farmer's market. They're joining CSAs. Uh, Whole Foods is now the fastest growing supermarket chain in the country. How incredible is that? Um, it's a, you know, uh, their, their growth is, is rapid. But you know what? Um, farmer's markets are growing even faster. They've doubled twice in the last 10 years. We have no idea how many dollars are being spent there because a lot of people aren't paying taxes. But, um, <laughs> but we can guess it's, it's, it's reached the billions. Um, it is in many ways, you know, it's an underground food economy. It is a lot like the last days of the Soviet Union where everybody was going around. At that point, 50% of the food that the Russians were, were um, eating was, was coming through these very uh, kind of informal networks, small growers, and um, uh, so it was really under the radar, but it became 50% of the economy. We're obviously not there yet. Um, so this hunger for alternatives. Um, in my book, after I looked at the whole industrial food supply, I decided, well, I really wanted to look at the alternatives, and I wanted to look at, um, uh, at organic food. Uh, very important alternative. Also the fastest growing segment in your supermarket. It was, when I started writing this book, it was under 1%, and now it's hitting about 3%. It's growing really quickly. And I want to read you a brief passage from the book to leaven all the dark news and um, um, uh, about what I call um, uh, the literary genre that's on, on, on offer at Whole Foods, which I found very interesting. And, you know, I come out, I don't come out of the sciences. I really come out of an English department. Uh, so I called it supermarket pastoral. Um, and I just want to read you a page or two. Um, 
I enjoy shopping at Whole Foods nearly as much as I enjoy browsing a good bookstore, which, come to think of it, is probably no accident. Shopping at Whole Foods is a literary experience, too. That's not to take anything away from the food, which is general. You, you guys don't have a Whole Foods yet, right? In Davis? Sacramento, okay. They're coming. That's not to take away anything from the food, which is generally of high quality. Much of it's certified organic. I'm going to do this one, something's in quotes, because there are a lot of quotes in this. Or humanely raised, or free range. But right there, that's the point. It's the evocative prose, as much as anything else, that, that makes this food really special. Elevating an egg, or chicken breast, or bag of arugula from the realm of ordinary protein and carbohydrates into a much headier experience, one with complex aesthetic, emotional, and even political dimensions. Take the range-fed sirloin steak I recently eyed in the meat case. According to the brochure on the counter, it was formerly part of a steer that spent its days living in beautiful places. <laughs> Ranging from plant-diverse, high mountain meadows to thick aspen groves and miles of sagebrush-filled flats. Now, a steak like that has got to taste better than one from Safeway, where the only accompanying information comes in the form of a number. The price, I mean, which you can bet will be considerably less. But I'm evidently not the only shopper willing to pay more for a good story. With the growth of organics and mounting concerns about the wholesomeness of industrial foods, storied food is showing up in supermarkets everywhere these days. But it is Whole Foods that consistently offers the most cutting-edge grocery lit. On a recent visit, I filled my shopping cart with eggs from cage-free vegetarian hens, milk from cows that live free from unnecessary fear and distress, <laughs> wild salmon caught by Native Americans in Yakutak, Alaska, population 833, and heirloom tomatoes from Capay Farm at $4.99 a pound, quote, one of the early pioneers of the organic movement. The organic broiler I picked up even had a name familiar to most of you, I'm sure, Rosie, who turned out to be a sustainably farmed, free-range chicken from Petaluma Poultry, a company whose farming methods strive to create harmonious relationships in nature, sustaining the health of all creatures and the natural world. Okay, not the most mellifluous or even meaningful sentence, but at least their heart's in the right place. And there's that word, sustaining. Um, in several corners of the store, I was actually forced to choose between subtly competing stories. For example, some of the organic milk in the milk case was ultra-pasteurized, an extra-processing step that was presented as a boon to the consumer since it extends shelf life. But then another, more local dairy, boasted about the fact that, that they had said no to ultra-pasteurization, implying that their product was fresher, less processed, and therefore more organic. This was the dairy that talked about cows living free from distress, something I was beginning to feel a bit of myself at this point. <laughs> this particular dairy's label had a lot to say about the bovine lifestyle. Its Holstein, Holsteins are provided with an appropriate environment, including shelter and a comfortable resting area, sufficient space, proper facilities, and the company of their own kind. <laughs> I really love that. Do you know any dairy that doesn't offer that to their cows? <laughs> As if they'd have to be integrated or something, you know. All this sounded pretty great until I read the story of another dairy selling raw milk, completely unprocessed, whose cows graze green pastures all year long, which made me wonder whether the first dairy's idea of an appropriate environment for a cow included, as I, as I had simply presumed, a pasture. 
All of a sudden, the absence from that, their story of that word seemed weirdly conspicuous. As the literary critics would say, the writers seem to be eliding the whole notion of cows and grass. Indeed, the longer I shopped in Whole Foods, the more I thought that this is a place where the skills of a literary critic might come in handy. Those, and perhaps also an investigative journalist's. And those of you who've read the book know that I went and did some of that investigative journalism, um, although I, I, I don't want to dress it up with that word. Let's just call it journalism. And I went to visit Rosie and uh, the organic, free-range, sustainably-raised chicken, and I went to visit some of the cows, um, organic cows, and I was kind of surprised and, and, and disappointed um, to find that organic is in many ways in danger of and beginning to repeat many of the mistakes of the industrial food chain. Uh, it is lapsing closer and closer to monoculture, and with animals it's already there. Uh, Rosie lives with 20,000 other organic free-range chickens in a big shed, not at all like the farm depicted on the label. Um, it's, it's a better product than many chickens. They have a few more inches of, of leg room. Um, they're, um, they get organic feed, no pesticide in the feed, and they don't get antibiotics, and they're not fed hormones. Um, do they really free-range? Well, I was very disappointed to see that uh, when I stepped into this um, long shed, it was, it was 100 yards long and 20,000 birds, and I said, so what, what about the free-ranging? And, and the, um, I was going to say farm hand, but these aren't really farms. The CAFO hand said, um, he said, well, we don't, you know, there's the door. There's a door right there, and there's a door at the other end, too. And I said, yeah, but it's closed. And he said, uh, well, we don't open it till the birds are five weeks old because we're really afraid they'll get sick since they're not getting any antibiotics. Which is very interesting. It kind of shows you that doing organic agriculture on an industrial scale is actually more precarious than industrial agriculture because you don't have the tools you need to be growing a monoculture of animals in close confinement. So we don't open it till they're five weeks old. And I said, okay, and um, how long do the birds live? He said, oh, seven weeks. And that's when I realized that the free-range thing was not so much a, a lifestyle for these chickens. It was kind of a two-week vacation option. <laughs> um, and when they do open the doors, they don't go outside. The water's inside. The feed's inside. The flock's inside. They've never been outside. Um, that that free-range yard, which does exist, is a conceit. It's a literary conceit for us. It's much like our front yards, our front lawns. Um, you know, it's, it's this kind of symbolic space that nobody actually uses. Um, but there are other ways, you know, so organic, there are now organic feedlots. Uh, there are now organic factory farms. Um, there are organic cows, many of them from labels that you probably buy and, and, and think are really special, are not getting pastured while they're milking. Um, and that seems to me a real shame and a real um, uh, declension from the ideal of organic. Um, food miles. I mean, organic is becoming just as processed as anything else, and we are moving toward an era. I just heard today about uh, organic uh, pizza at Pizza Hut. Um, you know, how do we feel about that? I mean, it's a mixed bag. There's something very good about it. It means many more acres of organic wheat and more, many more acres of organic tomato. Um, you know, an organic Coca-Cola, I could make an argument for. You know, uh, more, you know, more acres of organic cornfield, not doused with atrazine. But organic Coca-Cola, you know, do we really want to go there? Um, uh, and I don't know. I mean, you can argue it both ways. Um, 
But super, actually, organic food in the supermarket is now traveling further than conventional food, more than 1,500 miles. Um, the whole kind of regional distribution system is repeating itself in organics. If you buy local Washington tulips at the Whole Foods in Seattle, those tulips have first traveled down to California to a regional distribution center and then come back up to Seattle, even though they were grown a few miles away. Um, so you see the kind of, the, the kind of economic system is, is repeating itself. Um, and the future of organic, of course, is global. Walmart will get into organic, they're about to, and they will source a lot of their food in China. There are a lot of real questions about organics from China. How organic are they? Um, Stonyfield Farm Yogurt already, uh, these, again, one of the pioneers, a really good company in a lot of ways, but now they're sourcing organic milk powder from New Zealand because there's not enough organic milk in this country. They're sourcing strawberries from China, apple puree from uh, um, the Philippines, and blueberries from Canada. Um, I don't think that's the image the consumer has. There are good and bad things about that, and it's, it's, very, it's, it's very nice that our food dollars are helping take care of the land in China and the Philippines um, and New Zealand. But I don't think that that's why a lot of us buy organic. I think our goal is to take care of land a little bit closer to home. So after my kind of exploration of um, industrial organic, as I, as I was forced to call it, um, I went looking for something more sustainable. Um, and I found something really interesting. And I want to describe a farm that I spent a little time uh, at to you. Um, because I think we need to be cheered up. <laughs> and because models are very important. We need good models. Um, and you can ask me whether this farm can be scaled up. And you can ask me whether it works in California. And those are all absolutely legitimate questions. But the fact that it exists, um, I think, can help us define what we mean by this word sustainable. The farm, and if you've read the book, you know, you know a fair amount about it, um, although I want to stress some, some other things about it, is, uh, is Joel Salatin's Polyface Farm in the Shenandoah Valley of Virginia. I found it because I was looking for somebody who would, who would give me, when I was writing about industrial organics, somebody who would give me some really salty quotes about uh, the organic empire. And I had heard that Joel Salatin was that person, that he was a very strident critic of organic today. Um, and I called him up, and I got all my quotes, and, and he just was uh, fierce in his condemnation of Whole Foods and the, and the organic empire. And, um, and I also thought, I'd heard that he grew these amazing pasture chickens, and I was hoping at the end of this conversation that I could get him to send me one. And I was writing an article at the time about organics for the New York Times, and usually if you ask somebody, you know, they'll send you a review steak or a, re a review chicken. And... Uh, <laughs> And so at the end of my conversation, after I collected all my salty quotes, uh, I said to Joel, I hear you grow these amazing chickens. I'm wondering if you could ship me one. And he said, sorry, I can't do that. And I figured he wasn't set up for shipping. And I said, well, I can send the FedEx guy, and he can come with a styrofoam box. And, uh, and you know, all you have to do is drop it in, and I'll send you a check. And he said, no, no, you don't get it. I don't believe it's organic, sustainable, if you will, to FedEx meat across the country. It's like, wow, it was one of my more embarrassing moments as a journalist. I had just asked this guy, this avatar of local food, to send me a chicken by FedEx. Um, so he said, basically, if I wanted to try his chicken, I had to come down to Swope, where he lived, and pick it up myself, which I subsequently did. 
I learned more about his farm and decided I wanted to spend a week working there. And I kind of had what my wife calls my Paris Hilton adventure. Um, <laughs> where I went to work for Joel as a farmhand and, and worked as hard as I've worked uh, in my life and harder than anything else I did for this book. Because I happened to go... Uh, the week of the summer solstice, which, you know, has got really long days. And it's not when you want to be on a farm. Um, and we were getting up at 5 o'clock. And Joel is, I, I need to tell you, is a, he describes himself as a, um, uh, uh, let's see, an uh, evangelical Christian conservative environmentalist lunatic farmer. And part of the evangelical part is there's like no caffeine and no alcohol on this farm. And uh, so it was a, a really long week. And um, <laughs> I was sleeping in a trailer, in his mother's trailer. She lives on the property. And in, in, in one of these scaled-down trailer rooms where everything is, you know, kind of scaled down, including the bed. And the bed was like five feet long. And uh, I'm a little over six feet. And so it was a very long week. Um, but I learned a lot. And I saw something as thrilling as anything I've seen in, in all my years writing about nature and all my years writing about um, uh, our relationship to the natural world. Um, and I won't go into great detail. And if you want to read more, there's more in the book or I can take your questions later. But just to summarize uh, this farm, it's a polyculture, as his name suggests. Um, he has 100 acres of grass. And if you ask, and, and he grows um, a beef, pork, uh, broilers, eggs, turkey, rabbits. Um, and he's got about six species. And they grow in this very intricate symbiotic system, such that every animal is contributing some ecosystem service to another. Um, 100 acres of grass, 400 acres of woodlot, uh, very hilly land, not very good for row crops. Um, but very good for grass. And if you ask, I, one of the first questions I asked Joel, I said, are you, are you, so what, what kind of farmer are you? Are you a rancher? Are you a chicken farmer? Are you an egg farmer? And he said, and I'd never heard this before, he said, no, I'm a grass farmer. And that was very striking to me because we don't eat grass. There's no market in grass. You know, there's a little market in hay. How could you be a grass farmer? And he explained to me, well, that's the basis of this ecosystem that he created. And he's modeling these relationships on... on nature, on the relationships of animals and nature. So just to give you one example, and there, there, there are several of these, and they're all kind of wonderful, but the relationship of his, his beef and his chickens, his laying hens. Um, he, he does grass-fed beef, and uh, he's got a herd, um, 75 animals or so, and they each, um, they spend one day in a paddock. Uh, and they graze it really completely, okay? When, when you put that many animals in a quarter acre, that's roughly what they are. They graze it all down completely. And then at the end of the day, he moves them to another paddock. And what allows this to happen is this cheap electric fencing, which is really the enabling, I think, the most important sustainable agriculture technology for animal agriculture is this very light, cheap. I could, I could carry a quarter-acre paddock on my shoulder and set it up myself in 10 minutes. It's really remarkable stuff, and it's fairly new. Um, so they would graze down that pasture, and we would build another one right next to it, and he would then open the door... And, you know, you hear about moving the cattle and you need dogs and you need a can of chewing tobacco and you need a lot of trucks and a lot of screaming. And it wasn't like that at all. They knew the drill. They did it every day. And he kind of opened, he, was, he, he acted more, less like a cowboy than a maitre d'. He just kind of opened the door <laughs> and the cattle moved from one to another. And they were so happy to get to the next pasture because there was all that fresh green grass. And the end of the day is when it's sweetest because it's been collecting sugar all during the day. And there's that 
wonderful contented sound of cows ripping at at, uh, at clods of grass and, and uh, uh, ruminating. And it was a you know, great end-of-the-day scene. Um, then he has his chickens, which, which um, uh, he waits three days exactly. And then he tows them into that paddock that, the, that was vacated by the cows. The reason he waits three days is very interesting. But anyway, once he gets in there, uh, it, and, and this... this he calls it his henmobile, and it looks like a kind of ramshackle prairie schooner. He's made it himself. It's not an elegant piece of technology. Um, and he lowers the, um, the gangplanks, and 300 laying hens come streaming down the gangplanks, and they, they fan out over the, paddock, uh, the pasture. And what they do is they go right for the cow patties. And what they want to do is eat the larvae, the maggots, uh, out of the cow patties. And the reason he's waited three days is to grow those maggots as big and juicy as he can. Um, but if he waited any longer, on the fifth day they would hatch and he'd have flies everywhere. Uh, so he, by understanding the life cycle of this parasite, he's able to grow uh, the important protein source for his chickens. And so what they do is they eat all the flies. They take care of his fly problem. He calls, he calls the hens his sanitation crew. Um, and then he, um, uh, and then they do other things though. In the process of digging out these larvae, they spread his manure so he doesn't have these clumps. And they fertilize the paddock with their own very high, uh, very rich nitrogen manure themselves. Um, and then he knows exactly how long they can be there before the nitrogen load is too high. And then he moves them to the next paddock. And then six weeks later, Boom. He has this flush, this grass in the blaze of growth, and he can either cut it for hay or he can um, uh, bring in uh, the cows again. Um, and it's a, it's a really you know, exciting relationship because it's based on the relationship of birds and ruminants in nature. Birds are always following ruminants, cleaning up after them. But to really appreciate it, we just have to bear down and look at what, remember I said he was a grass farmer, the grass plant itself. And, and so just think for a minute about one of those grass plants in one of those paddocks. What's happening is that when, when a, a grass plant is sheared by a ruminant, it does something very interesting. It wants to keep its root mass in rough balance with its leaf mass so that if it loses its leaf mass, it's the, called the root-shoot ratio. You gardeners will be familiar with that term. And um, so what it does is it sheds roots to balance out. Um, and when it sheds the roots, he kind of cauterizes them and they die. And then they are set upon by all the life living in the soil. The earthworms, the protozoa, the bacteria, the viruses, the fungi. And they digest those roots. And when they're done digesting it, that is soil, compost. And that's how soil is built. Soil is built from the bottom up. This is how the, the, the great topsoil of the prairies was built. That pulsing of the pasture. Um, so he's actually creating soil. And what does that mean? Well, what that means is, at the end of the year, and I'll tell you how much food he takes off this 100 acres, 40,000 pounds of beef, 30,000 pounds of pork, 10,000 broilers, 1,200 turkeys, 1,000 rabbits, 35,000 dozen eggs off of this 100 acres. Um, and you know what? At the end of the year, there is more biodiversity, not less. There is more fertility, not less. There is more soil, not less. The significance of that is, this is not a zero-sum system. In our heads, I think all of us are stuck in this idea that for us to get what we want from nature, nature must be diminished. 
It is a process of subtraction. He is suggesting it need not be that way. A sustainable, a truly sustainable system can actually improve the soil, improve biodiversity, leave the land better than before we removed our food from it. Now, there's one example. There are other people doing this. It's, um, but it is, um, as I said, as heartening as anything I've seen because it makes you question that basic framework that we're in this tragic zero-sum relationship with the natural world. Well, maybe we need not be. Um, and that is really, I think, the goal, the ultimate goal of a sustainable agriculture. Um, one of the things about Joel that's very important is he only sells locally. He would not put that in the mail, in, in the, in the, uh, mail for me. And I want to say a few words um, before I take some questions in favor of local food economies. Um, you know, we're told today that it's sentimental. We're told it's reactionary to go back to local food, small farms, that kind of agriculture. And that the future is a globalized food economy where we get our milk powder from New Zealand and our organic food from China. And everything is produced wherever it can be produced most cheaply and shipped to wherever it can be sold most dearly. This is the dream of the globalizers. Um, we should be putting our land, our people, to a higher use than agriculture, as if there were any such thing. Um, and that to fight this is a rearguard action, is nostalgia. Um, now, there are reasons in support of local food, and you know them, that might strike the unsentimental as soft-headed. Let's try out a few. Well, we really like the idea of keeping farmers and their wisdom in our communities. We like the idea of keeping land near us in production, in food, rather than in houses and strip malls. We, like, we want to defend the land that we love. We like the idea of eating food in season, picked at the peak of its taste and nutritional value. We like what happens socially at the farmer's market, which is really emerging as the new public square in many of our towns, and I know that's true here. Here's a wonderful arena where city meets country. Um, where people politic and, you know, pass out petitions and schmooze. Um, you know, compare that to what happens in your supermarket. In fact, somebody did a study and they found that there, you have ten times as many conversations at the farmer's market than you do at the supermarket. And you do, I don't think we need a sociologist to tell us that, but it is true. And I think we like, and again, another sentimental reason, how the farmer's market or CSA lets us reconnect through these plants and animals and farmers to the natural world. I mean, think of what our children learn. They learn that a carrot is not a glossy orange bullet that comes in a plastic bag, <laughs> but is actually a root. This was news to my son. Um, now, I am I'm fully prepared to defend local food on those sentimental grounds, because I actually think they're very important. And I would point out that these relationships that I'm describing are a set of non-zero-sum relationships. There is a lot more added... This is about a lot more than the exchange of money for food. Um, but let me move the argument onto another ground, on a hard-headed, unsentimental ground for a second. Let me suggest that as the globalizers of food, the free traders of food, who are the real sentimentalists, who are, and Wendell Berry has made this point brilliantly in a piece called The Total Economy, uh, it is they who are acting on a faith for which there is no justification. Not unlike the Soviet communists, he wrote, 
who are the last great destroyers of local food economies, they tell us we need to sacrifice things we like here and now, landscapes, relationships, local enterprises, downtowns, for the promise of future prosperity that globalization will bring. We must, as Lenin said, break a few eggs to make an omelet. But tell me, what could be more unrealistic, more soft-headed, than to propose we should destroy things that we love, that we have now, that we treasure in the present, for the uncertain promise of some future benefit, of cheaper food? Um, let us stick with the eggs. Let us keep them from cracking. Let me suggest that there is nothing more hard-headed or realistic than building and defending local food economies. Indeed, to do so is not a matter of sentiment, but of critical importance to national security and public health. Let me explain what I mean. Energy. This global food economy, this promise of growing it wherever you can and moving it wherever it will be paid for is going to depend on cheap energy. It does already. Not to mention international peace and security from terrorism. Um, we will not reduce our dependence on foreign sources of energy or confront the issue of climate change without dealing with an industrialized, globalized food economy, without cutting some of the energy out of that system. Um, sovereignty. Do we really want to lose control of our food system and our destiny around food the way we have lost control of our destiny around oil. I don't think people want to go there if they, if they were to think about it at all. But make no mistake, to find ourselves dependent on foreign sources of food is precisely where the globalizers want to take us. National security. Well, our government knows better than we eaters the risks of a highly centralized food system. There was a very interesting moment post 9-11 where people looked at the food system for just a second and then closed that door. Tommy Thompson, when he retired from um, Health and Human Services, he was asked what had surprised him. Uh, he said, for the life of me, I cannot understand why the terrorists have not attacked our food supply because it is so easy to do. The reason it, was so, it would be so easy to do was laid out in a, he was responding to this 2003 GAO study that found that our food system, because it is so highly centralized, is subject to both deliberate and accidental contamination. So what is the government doing to deal with this threat? Well, absolutely nothing. You would think a country genuinely concerned about the security of its food system, the first thing they would do is decentralize it. And we're doing nothing in that direction. I mean, we as consumers are, but as a government, we're not doing anything. Um, public health. And as I said, we've just had an example of how precarious a highly centralized food system can be. Um, it's not to say you don't have problems in a local food system. You can have E. coli in the spinach in your, in your farmer's market, too. Um, but when that happens, it will not be a national story. It will not affect thousands of people. It will not close down spinach across the country. Although it's kind of interesting to see that spinach was not closed down in the farmer's market. At least in my market in Berkeley, spinach was still doing quite brisk sales. Um, why? Well, because people there put their faith not in regulations or what the FDA tells them, but in relationships, not technology. Um, and I think this is all, all these reasons are, are, are why we're seeing local food economies booming right now. Um, so, Yes, when the government won't protect our land 
our communities, our economies, our local economies. We have to do it ourselves as consumers, citizens. And we will. We can build a local food economy simply by getting out of the supermarket and voting with our forks. And we can do it very easily in this area, much more easily here than in many parts of the country. To do so, though, we're talking about a new kind of consumer. <coughs> um, you know, another word that needs some rectification. You know, it's a really ugly word. It's even uglier than sustainable, I think. Um, I've always hated that identity. You know, to be treated by the marketplace as a consumer. It conjures this selfish creature prowling the aisles looking for good deals. Um, you know, someone who's diminishing, you know, consuming, diminishing the world by, by his or her decisions, subtracting from it. But imagine a different concept of the consumer, one that incorporates the values of the citizen and even the species um, that, in which the, the shopper recognizes his or her obligations to a commonwealth, as a citizen does, and even to a biotic community, as Aldo Leopold said. Um, you know, we can shop for value in that debased McDonald's term of the value meal, or we can shop for values, our values. Um, we can redefine the consumer as a creator, as a creator of new food chains. Um, it's true, to do this takes more work, and we can talk about it later, um, shopping, foraging for food, cooking again, because you will not find anything microwavable at the farmer's market. Um, and it's more expensive. That's a very important part of the, uh, the dilemma we're in. Um, when you pay the real sustainable cost of your food, it will be more expensive, and we need to spend more money on food. True, not everybody can, but many of us can. Most of the people in this room can. Um, we're only spending, we're spending less than 10% of our income on food. That is less than any people in the history of uh, the planet. Any people anywhere on earth, 10%, less than. When I was a kid, it was 18%. It's, it's fallen. Where's all that money going? Well, you know, think what we weren't buying back then. Cell phones. We didn't pay for television in 1960. Um, you know, entertainment is, is sucking up a lot of that money. Um, we will have to elevate the importance of food in our lives and in our culture to make us feel good about spending more than we need to on food. Um, we need a new consumer who really understands what Wendell Berry famously said, uh, that eating is an agricultural act. It's an ecological and political act as well. We have a precious vote here our food dollars. In fact, we have three of them a day. Um, and if you think about it, how, how many, in how many other areas of your life can you make such an affirmative vote? Um, we have more control over this than so much in our lives. And, and to not use that vote well. Not every time. People aren't going to vote right for food every single time. But even if you do it once a day, and, and one economist said if people would just spend $10 a week on local foods, it would be a revolution. Um, we can help create the world we want to live in one delicious bite at a time. Now, before I finish, I want to make one other point, because we can vote with our forks, and that is very important, but we also need to vote with our votes. Um, and I just want to say a real quick word about the farm bill. So much of the system I've been describing, so much of the industrial food system, is the result not of nature, not of the free market, but of a set of policies that are enshrined in this bill, erroneously, erroneously called the Farm Bill. Um, 
It's boring, it's obscure, it's complicated. I'm not going to go into it tonight, but attention must be paid. These are, these, do, these are the rules of the game, and they get reset every five or seven years, and they're getting reset this year, or next year, 2007. Um, these rules determine what sort of agriculture your tax dollars will support, corn and soybeans or local vegetables, feedlot meat or local animal protect, uh, production. You have to let your senators and representatives know you're paying attention so they won't trade their votes anymore, because that's essentially what they're doing outside of the farm states. Don't even let them call it a farm bill. It's a food bill, and it's your fight. Thank you very much. Thank you. I'd just like to follow up on your last point about local food systems. And, and the question I have is that, uh, as you say, it's, it's easier to do here than other places that uh, community-supported uh, agriculture and uh, farmers markets and so on uh, often have to shut down half the year in areas where it's not feasible to grow things year-round. So I'm just curious, how do, you, how do we deal with that dilemma that it is obviously better for people to eat fresh foods uh, most of the time, nutritionally it's better, uh, and yet uh, in many parts of the country that's going to involve transportation. So I'm just curious, you know, how do you solve that solution of, of local food but also uh, nutritious fresh food in areas where it's not possible to do that? Well, I think that um, you're absolutely right. Uh, you know, I'm from New England, and uh, so I have a, a, you know, and, and I tried very hard to eat locally there, and um, uh, there is a lot you can do for half the year. Um, you do have a meat economy. I mean, the rhythm of meat in uh, the East Coast is very different than here because you slaughter animals in the fall, in the late fall, and so you do have a lot of meat over the winter um, because the grass is very green in the fall. And um, uh, so that becomes an important part of the winter diet. And there will be some shipment of food. Um, there's no question. Uh, there will still be. Before California started producing the nation's produce, you know, um, people ate frozen food in the, in the winter, frozen produce, um, which I actually think is kind of overlooked as a, uh, as a food source. Um, it's uh, often more nutritious than food that's spent, you know, five days on a truck. Um, and uh, so... You know, it's not going to be all the time, and there's still going to be trade and food. And these are, these are, uh, you know, I think we have to be realistic. Um, but I think it's, it goes that, back to that point that, you know, you're not going to cast every vote exactly right. But to cast, but to use that, the fact that it's difficult or can't happen all the time to, to say, well, this isn't practical, um, I think is a mistake too. I think if we were to eat locally when we could eat locally, um, that in itself would represent a profound change in the food system. Um, you know, it was only 50 or 60 years ago that New York was fed by New Jersey. You know, it was called the Garden State, because that's where New York City got its food. It didn't get its food from California, not very much of it. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of that farmland is still there, actually. Um, but, uh, so, I think there's more that can be done in the northern tier than is. Um, I also think that... Um, this is going to sound funny, but this idea you have to have a fresh salad every day, all year round. I mean, I, salad is a really overrated uh, food in many ways. <laughs> there are other things to have in the winter. Um, I did some calculations, and, and uh, bringing an organic salad across the country, one of those pre-washed mescaline salads, 56 calories of fossil fuel for every calorie of food energy. There's very little food energy in a salad. 
Um, so, you know, if you were to make a salad out of, you know, cabbage or uh, root vegetables, um, you know, you would probably, from a nutritional point of view, do quite well. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to sit here and write a cookbook about the wonders of, of uh, root vegetables, and um, uh, although I do think we'll need to rediscover them if we go really local. Uh, my question is about uh, preservation of farmland. Um, you've made some very uh, kind and generous comments about our community, and um, I'm personally very proud of the community and our university here. Um, about a mile west of here, west of Highway 113, there's a large plot of farmland that has been used by the university for years. It was actually uh, taken by eminent domain from the family that farmed it. The university is now developing that into a residence in a residential area. And um, my question is, would you embrace the wisdom of the university in making this selection <laughs> to support our growing population? Or would you like feel, feel like I do that I'm a, a little sad about it? <laughs> I think it's really important to save farmland. Um, <laughs> the reason is once it goes, we'll never get it back. And you know, it has to happen in this generation um, because there's a huge threat to it. There are projections in, the, in, in, the, in Sacramento about the future of California that, that say that there will be no farmland left in the Central Valley by the end of this century. That it will be wall-to-wall um, -wall houses and highways. Um, if nothing is done. So wherever, I don't know where exactly you, you put down your pitchfork and say no further, but um, uh, we have to find those lines and we have to find them soon. Uh, because once the houses go up, they'll never be taken down for food. And this is some of the best farmland in the world. Um, and all devel you know, development decisions should, should look at that. They should say, well, how good is the soil here? Well, we need this for food when we can't trade our food globally anymore. Um, so I think it's, it's, uh, I think it's of great urgency, and that's why I think this is really this generation's work, is to save this land near our cities. So I hope that helps. I'm going to take... Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, you know what? I think we should stop right there. Thank you so much. I appreciate your excellent questions. Thank you. It was a great pleasure talking to you tonight.